Well, our text this evening is Lord's Day 42, concerning the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Uh, But first, I'd like to read with you two brief passages. First, from 2 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 6, and then we'll flip over a few pages to Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. 2 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And then turning over to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The Apostle writes, Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. Now, Lord's Day 42 asks us quite pointedly, what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? And the answer is, He forbids not only outright theft and robbery, which governing authorities punish, but in God's sight, theft also includes all tricks, all evil tricks and schemes designed to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or means that appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of His gifts. On the other side, what does God require of you in this commandment? That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good. That I treat others as I would like them to treat me. And that I work faithfully so that I may help the needy in their hardship. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Eighth Commandment is remarkably simple in form. Four words in the Ten Commandments. Two in the original Hebrew. God's Word doesn't get more straightforward and pointed than that. 
And the surface of the command we know well, you shall not steal. Each one of our children has heard that command numerous times. Now perhaps we sometimes forget that when we see somebody else has something shiny and new and attractive, but when it's our own possession, we certainly know this command. You shall not steal means you may not take it if I haven't given you permission. So we get the essential concept of the Eighth Commandment. And yet, and yet, we're remarkably good at justifying what we know in our heart is wrong. Look at our precious toddlers, how sweet and innocent they look. And yet how quick that child can be to snatch a toy from another child's hand. We never taught them that it's okay to steal. Certainly not. And yet that greed, that longing to possess, arises unsought within them. As easy as the Eighth Commandment is to understand, from our earliest days we find it a challenge to actually keep. Perhaps. Perhaps that's why we don't fully grasp or don't seem to grasp why the Eighth Commandment, why that prohibition exists. It's because we know, but we don't want to know. We understand, but we don't really want to apply it. But God gave this commandment for essential reasons. And it's not merely to prevent fights among siblings. He gave this commandment to teach us something essential about Him and about how we should live in expectation before Him, what we should expect from Him. At the same time, He gave it to protect us from some sins that go much deeper than merely taking what is not ours, that actually reveal something about the heart of the one who steals that is deadly. And that's what we learn when we examine this command carefully. The heart of what this command teaches us is that we are to rely not on ourselves, not on our money, not on our efforts, not on our neighbors, not on our friends, not on our parents. We are to rely on our Heavenly Father to perfectly provide. Not to mostly provide, not to partially provide, but to perfectly provide provide for us. That's what the Eighth Commandment at root is seeking to teach us. God's grateful people rely on their Father to perfectly provide. And the first thing this Lord's Day shows us in seeking to teach that lesson is that the Eighth Commandment calls us to reject the pursuit of dishonest or illegitimate gain. But to understand that, we need to start with the basics. We need to look at a few definitions. First of all, what is it to steal? I think a simple definition is that stealing involves knowingly acting to take something that isn't yours. That means that you're not stealing if you don't know you're taking something. If you drive off with your friend's cell phone still in your car, you don't know that it's sitting in the back seat, you're not actually stealing it because you don't know it's there, right? By the same token, if you don't know, if you have no reason to think that what you're taking belongs to someone else, 
If you reach into the trash can to pick up something that you think was thrown there intentionally, it was cast off, not knowing that it was accidentally dropped there, you're not stealing. You didn't think it belonged to anyone. In other words, stealing is something intentional. You know that this belongs to someone else, but you're taking it. When we think of stealing, we most commonly think of theft and robbery. Kids, do you know the difference between those? Theft is when you take something that belongs to someone else without them knowing it. It comes in countless forms. Stealing something from a store, shoplifting. Uh, taking money from mom's purse. Those are little ways. It goes all the way up to, you know, hacking into a bank's computers and transferring, uh, transferring money electronically to an offshore account. Regardless of the size, whether it's stealing a piece of candy from mom's purse or stealing millions of dollars through the computer, it's all theft. You're taking what doesn't belong to you without the owner's knowledge. Robbery is different because the person knows you're taking it and you're taking it by force. Again, it comes in countless varieties from kidnapping and holding someone at, for ransom to robbing someone on the street with a gun or a knife to stealing knowledge by threatening a person with bodily harm unless they do your homework for you. All of it's robbery. You're taking something openly by force or by threat. Now, here's the thing. Most of us aren't even tempted by theft or robbery. We know stealing is wrong. All of our needs are met. And most importantly, perhaps, we don't want to get caught. It's not worth it to us to pay the price. But that doesn't mean that we're not tempted to steal in less obvious ways. Your brother isn't around and you really want to use his new toy drone or his new bike. One of your friends teaches you a trick about cheating PayPal to get stuff free online. Or you need a pen and you see one just lying there on the teacher's desk. Our hearts are skilled at coming up with excuses to justify those kinds of theft. Surely my brother would give me permission if he was here, right? PayPal makes so much money. I mean, what's the difference if I use a couple of their dollars? Or the pen. I mean, well, it's just a pen. It's not really worth anything. But listen, it's still stealing even if you think you can justify it really well, or even if you think you'll get away with it. And it's even easier to convince ourselves to steal when the stealing happens in a gray area. Our catechism talks about evil tricks and schemes. Evil tricks are using some sort of a plan in order to steal something with, without the owner's knowledge. This is what we do when we cheat on a test. We're stealing a grade with the hope that no one will ever find out that we stole it by bringing the answers with us. The adults are aware of the idea of cheating on taxes, which is another evil trick or scheme that seeks to get you money that's not rightfully yours. Or what about the, the trickery involved in saying you baked something, take, taking the credit for it when actually you went to the bakery and bought it. Evil tricks can be so subtle 
and can seem to be so inconsequential that we, we don't even think twice. It doesn't even pang our conscience. But there's still a form of stealing. And think about the schemes when you, you steal something through dishonesty. God condemns in Deuteronomy 25 having two kinds of weights or two kinds of measures. That's how merchants in the old days would sell 15 ounces of flour saying it was 16 ounces. Now, it might seem pretty, pretty small, pretty inconsequential, but God said that it was an abomination in His sight. Why? Because you're taking advantage of your brother. Or when you see your brother is in need... And you say, sure, I'll loan you the money. I mean, it's going to cost you 25% interest. Now, he doesn't have a choice. He needs that money in order to provide for his family. So he takes the deal. He enriches you. But at what cost? It's easier to justify such stealing. Think of, think of when you tell someone you think that this job's going to take about four hours and you're being paid by the hour. And it turns out it, turned, it, it was easier than you thought. It only took two hours. And you're really tempted to just follow through with that four-hour estimate. Or you're getting ready to sell a car and you know it has some transmission problems, but you know it's going to be pretty hard to sell that way. It's pretty easy then to start justifying it to ourselves. It's pretty easy to start making excuses to make it seem like you're doing, if not the right thing, at least not the wrong thing. But the question is, why is it wicked? It's wicked because such stealing, any kind of stealing, is at root an issue of misplaced love and idolatry. When we steal, we show that our love is misplaced. We were created to do what? Young people, what are the two great commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? So that means that loving God comes first, loving neighbor comes next. Loving you is way down at the bottom of the list. But when you steal, you're inverting that, aren't you? You're putting love for me up at the top. You're taking something for me at the expense of your neighbor. So your self-love comes at the cost of hatred toward your brother. And worse than that, when you steal like that, you who were made to bear the image of God, you're defiling that image. You who were made to proclaim the glory of God, when it becomes known, and it will eventually become known, that you were acting in such a self-loving way, well, you heap scorn on God. So that love for yourself came at the cost of love for God, too. So stealing is always a case of misplaced love, but beyond that, it's a case of idolatry. We are called to trust in God for everything. What did we hear in Hebrews 13, keep your love free or your life free from the love of money. Why is that? See, God wants us to beware of making an idol of money. He wants us to beware of thinking that money will answer all our problems. Money will solve all our woes. As long as we have money, we have nothing to worry about. That's a lie. Paul says in 
1 Timothy 6, verse 17, that we're to urge the rich not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see, riches, they come and go. You do well in your work, you invest that money, all of a sudden the market tanks and the money is gone, right? You make one bad investment and all that hard-earned, hard-saved cash is no more. But God is always there. Money is fleeting, but God is not. He says in 1 Timothy 6, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils because we're putting Money in the ultimate place, the place that should only be occupied by God. When we steal, whether we're stealing money or stealing possessions, we're relying on someone, something other than God. And that's idolatry. Really, at the end of the day, we're relying on us. I'll make sure my needs are met. I'll make sure I have what is necessary. Rather than God, rather than trusting in Him, rather than praying for what you need from Him. That's why God calls us to flee from all forms of stealing. And that's essential for us as Christians. God has promised to adopt us as His beloved children. Can we be His children truly if we're trusting in ourselves, if we're trusting in money, if we're trusting in things, rather than trusting in our Heavenly Father? God calls us as Christians to reflect to the world the character of Christ, our Savior. But are we reflecting Christ when we're stealing our neighbor's stuff, when we're stealing our neighbor's money, when we're trusting in our hands rather than in the hands of our Heavenly Father? He promised that His Spirit would dwell within us, empowering us for holiness. But when we steal, are we trusting in the Spirit to empower us? When we steal, are we acting like living temples in whom God dwells? Beloved, the dishonesty, the idolatry, the self-love of stealing is incompatible with everything we are as Christians. And therefore, we have to reject it. That's our calling under the Eighth Commandment, to reject completely every form of stealing. We need to be in the habit of asking ourselves, am I acting faithfully with what I receive? Have I received it righteously, uprightly, from God's hand. Even in the smallest of things. Kids, even in the small things. It's so easy to justify stealing a piece of candy, stealing a quarter. Because it's just a quarter. It's just a piece of candy. But you know what? God tells us, Jesus told us in, um, in Luke 16, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Because whether you're stealing a piece of candy or a million dollars, you're revealing the same idolatry and the same self-love in your heart. You're just showing that you're not willing to risk as much for it. But the idolatry, the self-love, they're the same, regardless of the cost of what is stolen, and therefore we must reject it, whether small or large. But this calling of the Eighth Commandment is not only about the sins we're to avoid. In teaching us to reject the sin of stealing, God is calling us to embrace 
a particular calling. And that lies, too, at the heart of the Eighth Commandment, at the heart of what it means to be God's children. Because in calling us to reject stealing, God urges us to be content with what He provides. So our second point here is that we must recognize the blessing of God's sufficient provision. My friends, we must never forget that God is the King of all that exists. In Leviticus 25, God instructed Israel concerning their use of the land that He was giving them. He instructed them concerning how it should be divided, how it should be treated, how it should be sold or not sold. And as he does so, he explains why he has the authority to give them this instruction. He says, this is Leviticus 25, verse 23. He says, the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. Now that's just as true for us as it was for the Israelites in Canaan. All that exists, God made it. God possesses it. God owns it. And so all that we have... We've received it from God. He entrusted it to us and for a purpose. There's not a shirt in your closet. There's not a dollar in your wallet. There's not a single slice of bread in your kitchen that was not entrusted to you by God for a purpose. We need to remember that. We heard the counsel in Hebrews 13. Be content with what you have. And that counsel has to come with what follows it. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's how we can be content with what we have. You look at what you have compared with what your neighbor has and you think, well, he has a lot more than I do. I got this beat up old car. He's got a brand new, brand new off the lot car. It still has the nice, nice uh, new car smell to it. Why do I have it? Wait, God is with you. God is providing for you. Oh, but my neighbor has the new camper and the new boat and the... But God is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Whatever you need, He's going to give you. If you needed that new boat, He would give it to you. And if you don't have it, then you must not need it. But if, on the other hand, you're not content with the things you have. If, on the other hand, you're overwhelmed with the injustice of the fact that he has all of this and I have only this, then aren't you not implicitly saying, God made a mistake. God did something unjust. God failed to give me that which I need or deserve. Far better that we recognize that our Heavenly Father knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what I need. He also knows how I would misuse certain things. He knows what I need, and He also knows the lack I need that will motivate me to pray or that will enable me to better serve Him. Be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? How can we refuse to fear the future? Only if we know that God is with us. 
If you're relying on yourself, Bill Day is going to be the worst day of the week or the month for you every single time. Because you're going to look at that paycheck and you're going to look at any other income you have coming in and then you're going to look at that stack of bills and you're going to see that number in the bank account go right back down. And then you're going to walk outside and you're going to see that the tires on the car are going to need to be replaced before winter. And you're going to wonder what thing is going to break in the house next. Is it going to be the water heater at $1,000? Is it going to be the furnace at $5,000? Is it going to be the air conditioner at $10,000? And where is the money for that going to come for? And, oh, look at that. It looks like the roof might need to be replaced in a few years. And how are we going to save up for that? And, you know, eventually, I'm getting older. I'm going to retire. And where's the money for that going to come? And you're going to be an absolute mess. Unless we recognize that the Lord is the one who has provided absolutely every single thing that we possess. And he has done so with the utmost of perfection. Knowing exactly who we are and what we need. And that he who has done so thus far will continue to do so. You see, this is why God forbids greed. Greed is the sin of desiring, of setting our hearts upon what God has not provided. And in doing so, it reflects the conviction of our heart, God messed up. God has not given me what I deserve, what I need. And that is the antithesis of faith. Because greed says that either God's love or God's power is lacking. Either God doesn't understand that I really need this, or He understands it and He's not able to give it to me, or He's able, He just doesn't care to. But something is lacking in God. That's what greed says. But on the other hand, 1 Timothy 6.6 says, There is great gain in godliness with contentment. There is great gain because... When we're content, though we maybe have a smaller home than our neighbor, though we maybe don't earn as much as our co-workers, though we perhaps don't have as much saved for retirement as we would like, when we are content, we're confessing implicitly and explicitly, God has provided, God will provide, and God's love and power are perfect. I can trust Him. At the same time, we need to pray for the power and the conviction to use well all that He gives. Again, all that we receive, we receive from God. Whether money and material goods, or our health and our strength, or the gifts and the abilities that He's entrusted to us. God has given it all to us, and He's given it with a purpose. First Peter 4 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We're called to use what we have as stewards. Kids, you know what a steward is? A steward is someone who uses things that aren't his. Right? Somebody else owns it. But I use it as I've been instructed for the blessing, for the benefit of that person. If you're an employee of a company, you're a steward. They entrust you with certain tools, 
and with certain kinds of training. And you're to use those tools and that training and the job opportunities that they set before you to serve that company, to represent that company's name, to bless those people that have hired that company. Well, we are all stewards of everything we have. All the money, all the power, all the opportunities, all the talents, all the gifts, all the time, and the health, and the strength. Now, how will you use that? If you have a gift from God and you refuse to use it, what does that say about your relationship with the Lord? If you have the ability to serve, but you reject that, what does that say about your relationship with the Lord? But on the other hand, if you have an ability, you have a talent, and you take the time to sharpen and deepen that to make it extremely useful, or you have a resource and you're willing to share it with your neighbor, you're willing to share it with someone who has less, what does that say about your relationship with the Lord and your trust that He will continue to provide? That's why, you see, in our main scripture reading... The apostle urged, do not grow weary in doing good. It wasn't simply a matter. It wasn't simply a matter of making sure that the people in need were taken care of. It was a matter of ensuring that God's people were becoming the stewards they were called to be. And this leads us to our last point. We're called to reflect the generosity of our selfless God. As we, as we reject that pursuit of dishonest gain that shows a misplaced love and an idolatry, as we recognize the perfectly sufficient provision God has given us, we're to take that sufficient provision and we're to use it in a way that reflects the character of God who gives us everything. Our catechism points out three ways that we're to reflect God's generosity. I think they're beautiful, not just examples, I think they're beautiful callings for us. Opportunities for us to evaluate our lives and to think ahead of how how can we serve God, how can we reflect His generous spirit. The first is our calling to seek out ways to do good for our neighbor. Leviticus 25, which we read from a bit ago, God calls His His people to maintain those among them who became poor. Jesus himself said there will always be the poor among you. Is that because God is incapable of lifting them out of their poverty? No. Sometimes you've got to be poor for a time so that your neighbor has the opportunity to serve God through you. Sometimes God allows those among his people to be poor so that others among his people can learn to be generous. And so he instructed them in Leviticus 25. You support your poor brothers. You you meet their needs. You give them what they stand in need of and don't charge them interest. That doesn't mean that we can't give business loans that charge interest. But if you're loaning them money so that they can buy food, so that they can buy clothes for their kids, you don't charge them interest on that. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talk about this. There was a famine in the land of of Palestine, in Canaan. And the Christians there, especially in the area around Jerusalem, were really struggling. 
And so Paul urged the the Christians in Corinth and elsewhere throughout Asia Minor to take up collections, to take up offerings, and to support them with the abundance that they had been given. He pointed out that God, God gave you this abundance, not simply so that you could be rich and well satisfied, but so that you could meet their need. And he reminded them God loves a cheerful giver. Because when we cheerfully give, we're confessing before all the world, it is my delight to give from my abundance to those who have lack. It is my delight to meet their needs with the, way, with the things that God has given to meet my needs. When we do that, we're reflecting the generous character of God. What a blessing that is. And what a joy. Another part of our calling is to treat others as we wish to be treated. When we treat others lovingly, when we offer faithful service to them, we're offering, says Hebrews 13, a sacrifice which pleases God. That sacrifice encourages the faith of those to whom we show love because in our love they experience God's love. What form might that take? It might involve loaning someone the tools and the possessions that God has entrusted to you. It might involve teaching someone a skill which God has caused someone else to teach you. It might involve mentoring someone, teaching them in a way that involves sharing your life. When you see your brother in need... Prayerfully ask yourself, how would I want someone to help me if that was me? And finally, we're called to work faithfully so that we can share with those in need. This was the, a main point in that passage from 2 Thessalonians 3. There were folks who were idle. If we look at the broader context, it's entirely likely that they were justifying it by saying, you know, the Lord could return at any time. I'm not going to waste all my time working. I'm going to do the bare minimum. And really, it would be great if you would, you know, provide for me. Because I, I'm just going to go out and talk about the Lord. And that's good to go out and talk about the Lord. It's good to encourage others in their faith. But Paul says, you know, when we did that to you, for you, we were also working. We were also meeting our needs and we did that as an example. That you're called to use your gifts, you're called to use your talents to meet your own needs. That's why, that's part of the reason God gave you those talents. But go beyond that. Don't merely be content to meet your own needs. And notice how important that is. He says if they won't work, they should not eat. They're able, he's not talking about someone who's not able-bodied. He's talking about those who are able-bodied and able to work. Go out and work. That's how God, that's how God will meet your needs, by you going and earning a good living. Young people, you get that, right? Don't be content to sit at home and do nothing. Go out and work. Go out and earn a good living. But don't be content then to earn enough for you. Ephesians 4 verse 28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him earn that he might have something to share with those who are in need. The unbeliever is content to take what is not his. The Christian turns that over. Not only does he not take what is not his, he takes what is his and gives it to others. Because that's what God does. And we're called to reflect him. And what a testimony that is. 
What a witness that is as we demonstrate the faithful generosity of God in that way. So serious is that calling that Paul, Paul says, if they won't, have nothing to do with them. If they're insistent that they're not going to work, much less share with others, that they're just going to be content to sit there and meditate upon God's Word or satisfy their laziness. Shame them. Because it is shameful to have been given all of these gifts, to have been given all of these opportunities and to refuse to use them. Folks, these positive aspects of the Eighth Commandment, they're an obligation, but they're also a privilege. When we seek to do good to others, when we treat one another generously, when we work hard so that we can share with others, when we do this, we are reflecting the character of God who is generous beyond our understanding. And if you don't get that, then your assignment for tomorrow morning is to look around your life and count your blessings. Look at the family that God has given you, both your earthly family and your church family, to encourage and teach and bless and rejoice you. Look at the gifts and the talents and the knowledge that He has set in you and the opportunities for service that provides. Look at the physical gifts, the money, the tools, the stuff. Look at the the freedom that we have been given and the prosperity into which we have been placed. Look at the job market right now, where if you're willing to work, you certainly can find a job. Look at all of those rich blessings. And having seen them all, Recognize that every one of them has been given so that you can use them in a way that shows the world the selfless, generous love of God. What an immense privilege that is. So let's embrace that privilege. Using our gifts and talents to serve others. Encouraging each other in serving and doing good. Teaching our children by our instruction, but especially by our example. And God will be seen through us, His beloved children, as we demonstrate the provision that has been given to us. The end of the matter. God's grateful people rely on their Father to perfectly provide. Let us rely on Him rather than on us. Let us Ask Him to bless our efforts at honoring Him with all He has given. And beloved, He will answer. And He will use us to bring great glory to Himself. Amen. Let's pray.